prayer, corporate prayer with one another, joining our hearts and minds together and talking to God, interceding for peoples and nations, asking God to make a name for himself. So if you would join me in a time of prayer. Uh, Father, we um, just singing these songs that we've sung to you, Lord God, and being reminded again, Father, that you've called a people to yourself and that people is unified and one in Christ, that he has knit us together, and that our voices, Father, are joining with the saints who have come before and the ones who are angelic beings that are singing to you even now. We join our voices to theirs, Lord God, and we know that you are pleased with our prayers and are pleased with our praise and these things are a pleasing aroma in your presence, Lord God, and that is a delight for us, and we want to just engage with you in that way, Father. Um, there's so many things, Lord God, that are out to hurt us and harm us in this world, and we leave the doors of this place this morning even, and we'll be bombarded with so many things, Lord God, and we know that you have promised us that you will sustain us, that you begin a good work in us, and that you will bring it to completion. <laughs> so I pray, Lord, that these truths would be even more true for us this morning. Father, I pray that, um, that we pray, Lord God, that we want to see multitudes of people come to know you in this city. We want to see a great revival we want to see your name made great in Corvallis and in Oregon and around the world, Lord God, and, and not for selfish reasons because we want to be part of something big, but because we desire to see your name made great. Lord God, your word says that your name will be great amongst the nations. From the rising of the sun even to its setting, your name will be great. So we that's what our desire is. We want, we want that to be our desire. Help that to be our desire this morning. That your name might be made great. And Father, we pray for the churches that are gathering. We pray for the other believers around the world that are gathering. And we ask that you would comfort them and strengthen them. That in their singing to you, they would renew their understanding that we're one and we're unifi unified. In our praise to our God that Jesus unifies us, Father, I pray that when the word is spoken in a sermon, Lord God, in each of these places this morning, that your spirit would go forth and it would be effectual and impactful in the hearts of those who hear. Wherever your gospel is being proclaimed this morning, Lord God, we pray that would be true. We know that that would be true. You promise it, that it will not return void. And so, we, we press into that this morning, trusting that you will do a work in our hearts as we study your word and, and praise you through worshiping in song and in prayer and in the taking of communion and the fellowship that will happen after the service. Strengthen us as a people, Lord God, that we might be more useful to you. Help us to be your ambassadors. 
in our context that you've placed us, Lord God. We want these things to be true. We want our church to grow, not because of numbers, Father, but because of your glory might be proclaimed in our city. And so help us to do that. Give us the courage and the the faith that we need to do that work and help us to do that together, encouraging one another. Father, we love you, and we say these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible... We're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. We've been working our way through Exodus. It's been a beautiful, beautiful study. God is delivering a people to worship him. He's chosen a people amongst the nations. He has, at this point, delivered them from the bondage of slavery This beautiful picture of what he does for us. Not physical slavery in our context, but the slavery of sin and death. He's delivered them with miraculous acts. He's shown that he was faithful when he promised to Abraham that that he would do this. That he would gather a people for himself and that people would would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and, and that one day he would bless the whole world through that people and he would bring them into a new land. And so we pick up the story in chapter 15 and he's just, they've just parted the Red Sea and this miraculous thing has happened and they're on the other side of the Red Sea and Perhaps they've been there for a couple days and they've spent time formulating a song to sing in response to what God has has done, this mighty act of deliverance that he has done. And the the, the tone of the moment is, is almost as though they're saying, we have to sing. There, there's no other appropriate response to what just happened. We must sing. And, uh, and so that's where we pick up our story. We're going to be going through chapter 15, starting at verse 1, and we're going to be ending at verse 18. So let me read that for us, and then we're just going to make some observations about the song itself, its content, and uh, hopefully we'll have some good application here for us this morning. So Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The flood covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. The blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. 
The flood stood up in, the, in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill in of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to, their, to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the cities of the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Why did they sing? They sang because sometimes when something amazing happens, The only appropriate response, the only response that conveys truly the depths of how astounding and amazing that thing is, is to sing. Sometimes words aren't enough. Sometimes poetry is necessary. Sometimes harmony is necessary. We were made to praise. We were made to enjoy things to identify something as truly remarkable and then turn around and praise it. That's how we were made. God made us to be like that. When we have something that we've experienced, we have a book that we've read or a show that we've watched or a movie that we've seen or or something that we've experienced at a a restaurant or a dish or that, this or that, what do we do? We we, we have to praise it. We, We have to go to somebody and say, this was amazing. I do this all the time. I, I praise my gym all the time. A lot of you have heard me say, my, you got to come. Let's go to the shop. Let's go work out together. Let's do this. Why? Because I've enjoyed that thing, that place, that activity. And God has made me, being a person who worships, all of us are, to take that enjoyment and to do something with it, to praise it. And it's almost not even sufficient that I praise it. I also have to recruit people into it to enjoy it too. In a way, that completes the joy of the praise, doesn't it? The experience of praising something. It's not sufficient to just say, that thing was amazing. It's, it's, that thing was amazing. You ought to check it out. We were made to praise that which we value. We were made to praise that, those experiences in our lives that were astounding. And here the Israelites had just had an experience like none other. And the only appropriate response for them naturally would be to praise it, praise the one who made it happen through song. They had to sing. You know, I was going online. I wanted to have instances where I wanted to find instances where something amazing happened to a group of people. And the, and the first response they had was to start singing. 
And so I typed in Google, and I was like, spontaneous singing. And, uh, the, you know, I got this list of, of stuff, and one of the things was like the top 10 songs that, pr- that instantly get people singing. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'll check it out. So I, I went through the list, and there were some songs there like, yeah, that's, that's a song. The moment you hear the tune, you're, you're like, oh, I'm in there. I'm singing. One of those uh, was um, Sweet Caroline. Sweet Caroline. Okay, so there you go. So I found a video of them doing that at Penn State's a football game, 100,000 people on the stands. And they play the music. Da-da-da. You know, and the whole, it's like quiet for a second. Oh, it's coming. And then, da-da-da. You know, and then they start to play the song. And the whole crowd is going wild. And they're singing along to the song. And I was like, I was like there's something there. There's something there. And so I kept, on my, I kept, I kept thinking about this and this, this notion of, of a, how a song captures a moment and draws you in. And, and I just, just like the mixtape. Back in the day, we used to have mixtapes. And we would, sh- we would share them with friends. It was almost a way for you to say, this is kind of who I am based off of the music that I listen to. And you would, sh- you know, you give that to a girlfriend or a girlfriend would give it to a boyfriend or, or you'd give it to a friend or this, that, or the other. And, and you had, like, they're your jams. Your songs, you know? And uh, it's true. It's true. You put that mixtape on, it it draws you in. It brings you to a place, an experience, a memory, a thought. Songs are powerful tools. Powerful tools. And look what they're doing. They're singing. And what are they singing about? They're singing about the fact that they have just been saved. So for the Christian, this song gives us a bit of a template. What do we sing about as a church? What do we sing about as a people? We sing about the fact that we've been saved, that this amazing thing has happened. We were in slavery and bondage, and God has done something amazing to save us. And so we sing, all worship, therefore, for the Christian flows from the fountainhead of redemption. All of it comes from that source. So I want us to look at the content of this song I want us to, to see if we can notice anything that will be helpful for us as we engage in singing songs to God together as a people in our own quiet times alone. I want us to look at, at some things here. I want The first thing I want you to notice is that in this song, there is no mention of Moses or Aaron or Miriam. This song is all about God. It's all about God. There is a sense in which there is a a bit of a litmus test, if you will, for the Christian when it comes to their song. You can make some inferences, if you will, based off of where you are in your spiritual journey and your spiritual maturity based on the songs that you enjoy singing. Are those songs all about him? Are, Are you able in your heart, are you able to find joy and delight in giving God all the glory? That is a sign of Christian maturity. When, it's, when, you, when, you, when you realize it's not about you. It's not, about, it's not even so much about how you feel. It's about God and what he's done. Does that, does that bring delight when you sing those songs? Are you, do you gravitate towards those songs? That's a diagnostic thing that we can be doing in our hearts. Are you able to give God all the glory? One of the things about Christian maturity is it's, it's a slow movement, isn't it? It's like the person who, who decides to start working out for the first time. They got, a lot, they got layers of, uh, well, <clears throat> fat 
And <clears throat> those layers of fat over time begin to, to go away and you start to see the muscle underneath all those layers of fat as they work out and get stronger and build those muscles up. That's kind of how it is with the Christian life. As we are maturing in Christ, we, the, the fat of our selfish, consumeristic ideals and notions begin to, to kind of go away and we start to see that we want to just glorify him. We want our songs to just be about him because <laughs> we, we know there's nothing good about me and of, of myself. There's nothing worthy of praise about me or even people, even people like Moses. There are no great men of God. There's just weak and, and pitiful and needy and, and destitute men of a great and women of a great and glorious God. We, we notice the first thing that this is all about God. Second thing I want us to notice about this song is it sheds some light about a progression also that we see in our understanding of God. Notice uh, in verse 11 here, who is like you is the question that, that this people ask. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? You know, in chapter 3, we saw that Moses asked God, who, well, who should I say sent me? Who should I tell the people sent me? And then in verse 5, we have Pharaoh saying, who is the Lord? Who is this Lord that I should listen to him? Who is this Yahweh that I should listen to him? And now in verse 11, the people have seen who he is. And now the change in the question is, who is like you? Oh, Lord, who is like you? They are astonished by what they have discovered about God through this whole redemptive process. And the answer is, who is like you, O Lord? Why? Because he is majestic in holiness. Holiness, that word that means completely different. Morally righteous, but completely different. There is no one like him. He is majestic in his holiness. Their view of him has matured as evidence in that question in verse 11. The third thing I want us to notice is the structure of the song. You know, when we talk about trying to glean the, the main emphasis of a, of a text in Scripture, we oftentimes need to find the structure of the song. We need to find the structure of the text. The structure will lead to an emphasis, and the emphasis, the main emphasis, should be the thing that we are preaching about most in the sermon or in our time of study, the thing that we're thinking about. What is the structure of the song? It's broken up, basically. There's a couple ways that we can structure it, but the one that I landed on is broken up into two parts, verses 1 through 12, talking about God the warrior and what he's done. And then verses 13 through 18, talking about God the warrior and what he will do. What he's yet to do. The structure unlocks the emphasis. And sometimes there is helpful verses that help us to interpret the structure. And in this case, I think there is a very helpful interpretive key that we see in verses 2 and three. Let's read those. 
The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This, these two verses, I think, help us to unlock the meaning, the main emphasis of our song. Namely, that God is viewed in the sense of him as a warrior. He is a warrior who fights for his people. And what does that warrior do? He becomes his people's strength. He becomes their salvation. He becomes their song. This is, this is helpful for us to interpret the song. What are we, what are we supposed to, how are we supposed to think about this song? God as the warrior is our strength, our song, and our salvation. God as the warrior will bring his people home. So let's look at that first part. God as a warrior. God the warrior is our strength, our song, and our salvation. In order for God to be our strength, we first need to become his people. We first needed to be redeemed. And God did that which his people could not do. How did he become their strength? He he became what they couldn't do. He did what they couldn't do. He rescued them from the bondage of slavery, something they couldn't do in their own strength. It doesn't say that God gave me strength or gave them strength. It doesn't say he, he supplemented their meager strength with more strength enough to do what was necessary. No, no, no. It says that he became their strength. Again, this idea of maturing in Christianity, we start to see more and more that God is our strength. He is the source of strength. The Lord God, the warrior, was their strength. They were weak, and we are weak. So God becomes our strength. C.S. Lewis says, what other strength could he be? What other strength could he provide? If not his own, there was no strength under heaven or on the earth that could be our strength. It had to come from him. He was the only source. Now we see in this interesting interaction of how God became their strength and did that which the people could not do in the song of Egypt. There's a second song in our song, the song of the Egyptians. Let's take a look at the song of the Egyptians. It starts in verse 10. Or excuse me, verse 9, the enemy said, this is their song. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill in the, of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And what does God in his strength do to counter the song of the Egyptian? The Egyptians. He dismisses their song with a sneeze. With a sneeze. Look at verses 6 and then verse 8. 6 through 8. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils... 
The waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. And then in verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. We need to sing songs of God's victory over our strong and oppressive enemies. God's victory over sin and his victory over Satan and his victory over death and his victory over the seductions of the world that call us to go back to the way we used to be. We need to sing songs of God as our strength. Not only is he our strength, God the warrior is our song and our salvation. What does that mean? What does it mean that God the warrior is our song? You know, I was again just just thinking about that and I was uh I was just, you know, searching the internet, I guess. I don't even know what I was just looking, you know. Sometimes you just go look. And uh I was on Facebook. Somehow I got to Facebook. Not very helpful. And uh, so then I was on Facebook, and um, one of my friends, she posted something, you know, and it was a video. It was a little video from America's Got Talent. And, uh, you know, she had the crying emoji. You know, so I'm like, all right. You know, I'm kind of a sucker for uh, um, just emotive songs. You know, songs that just make you want to cry. I don't know why. It's just like there's something about I just, I just, I'm just gravitate towards those, those songs. And uh, it was pretty obvious based off the little image that, that this is going to be one of those songs. So I was like, all right, fine, I'll take the bait. I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. So I click on the link to go to the YouTube video. And, uh, it, you know, the girl walks up. You know, you think about America Got Talent, American Idol, all those shows. They got the panel, Simon Cole's over there, whatever. The girl walks up, and, you know, deer in the headlights look on her face. And, uh, you know, you get, they, they, of course, they span to, 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 call, or to Simon, um, and he's, he's got that scowl on his face, like, you know, she's, she's a waste of his time kind of a thing. And this is a big waste of his time. And uh, so she starts talking, and, you know, they ask her a couple questions or whatever. You know, what do you do? Uh, you know, how old are you? Blah, blah, blah. And, and when they got to what do you do, she's like, well, I haven't worked in a year. And they're like, well, why, why haven't you worked in a year? And she's like, well, I've had cancer. You know, and there's like a hush. You know, like, oh, no. And um, so they said, well, do you still have cancer? She's like, well, yeah, I still have cancer. And they're like, okay. And she's like, but it's okay. It's okay. And she had like this posture and she kind of just like brightened up and, her, and she kind of put her shoulders back and she was very confident, but it's okay. I'm not, that doesn't define me. My disease doesn't define me. And they're like, okay, well, tell us about the song. And she's like, well, over the last year, the song recounts like what I did over the last year as I'm like battling cancer. And they're like, all right. You know, so then they, they, they kind of stop talking and the music starts. And she just gives this two minutes of just, like, powerful um, song of her last year. And the thing that stuck out to me as I'm listening to this is that she says, she's like, we're all a little lost, and that's okay. We're all a little lost sometimes, and that's okay. And as I was listening to that, Man, I, I, I went to a place where my heart said, no, that's not okay. It's not okay that we live in a world where there's somebody who has a struggle with cancer. It's not okay that we have people who have miscarriages. It's not okay that there's a war going on right now in the Ukraine. It's not okay. 
And at first, I thought she was just trying to like make, she was just trying to find a space where she can be like, you know what? Everybody's life is messed up. We all have these battles that we, that we battle. We all share these things together. And somehow we just got to be like, you know what? This is just life and it's okay. It's going to be okay. And everything in me was revolting against that. I remember the conversation I had with a member of our church where we talked about this and we're like, it's, but it's not okay. It's not okay. God's world was not intended to be this way. So I started to do more research on her. I was like, I'm going to use this. Man, I'm going to use this in the sermon. I just got to use this. So I started to do more research on her story. Then I found a blog post that she did. And I was like, oh my gosh. I'm going to read this blog post to you. I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer. And for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became a p- my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I have had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll just say I never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor. Banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses. Sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times, I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it too. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat repeat night and day, sunrise to sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote to me in the grout. I am sad too. It's not okay. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins of his arm. 
I reminded myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I, don't, that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake. Fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy bread here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, and the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned. But that's not all. Call me blessed. Call me sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen to him. I know it sounds crazy, and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. When we think about the things in this world and we think about the deaths that are surrounding us and the pain and the sorrow and the hurt and all the rest, all the things that aren't right, we have to come back to the notion that God also says it's not right and he's done something about it. He came down. You know, when I was thinking about the Exodus story, and I was like, well, of course God blew with his nostrils, and the, and the flood waters rose, and they fell on the Egyptians. He's God. That's so easy. That's nothing. But then I have to remember, hold on a second. He fought all the battles that we couldn't fight. He is our strength. He is our song. He is our salvation. And how did he fight those battles? The ones that were even more treacherous, even more gruesome, even more dangerous than the Egyptians. The ones of death and sin. He fought it by coming down. By, by descending down. By, by, by humbling himself. By becoming made to look like a servant. Coming in the form of a man. He, he came down. He submitted to a cross. The, the shame of a Roman cross. And then... He hangs there, and his fellowship with the Father, perfect, always, communion with him. The Father looks at him when he becomes sin for us, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You say, what what did it cost him to be our strength? What did it cost him to be our song? What did it cost him to be our salvation? He came down and he took our shame upon himself. 
And God the Father poured out his wrath upon him. So, we have a song to sing. He's given us a song. He gave this girl a song. It's not okay, and I've done something about it. And he has become the source of our praise. He has earned that. He was not silent. He was not idle. He acted on our behalf. He acted for the sake of his glory, that we might see the full spectrum of his attributes, that he is holy, righteous, just, but merciful and gracious. So he becomes our song and our salvation. And when we're in the deepest, darkest moments of life and things seem to be crashing down on us, when we're on the bathroom floor and we're wondering, what is it? What is it? What is it? What's your mercy in this moment? What does it look like? We come back to the ideas and these, these truths of the gospel that says, this is what it looks like. And he says it's not okay, and he's done something about it, and he has become our song. He has become the thing that we sing about, that precious thing that's happened to us that we must, we must praise him for. And we must recruit others into that story. Part two of our song here doesn't look back. It looks forward. Starting at verse 13, you have led... In your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed led where? Where, where is he leading them to? What, what, what's the next chapter in the story? The people have heard, and he goes into the, the enemies. There's still enemies of God out there. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till when? Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And you will bring them in. And you will plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your people holy abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, and you will reign forever. God the warrior will bring his people home. He will bring them to the promised land. This is that final act. This is that scene in Revelation. We, we, we uh, shared it uh, before it, and went, uh, when Sean read the scripture that he, the sun will burst forth from the sky with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet sound of God, he will come for his people. He will come back for his people. And the, the enemies of God will make war on the lamb, the, the Revelation says, and, and he will defeat them. And he will defeat them. We got, it's probably fitting, I suppose, that we have a, a second mention of Moses' song in Revelation, because the song alludes to this thing that is yet to come. So turn with me. Let's take a look at that second mention of Moses' song, Revelation chapter 15. 
I don't, it's just coincidental, Exodus 15 and Revelation 15, but sometimes it's just crazy how the word is like that. Revelation 15, verse 2, we have the second mention of Moses' song. The song that they sang after crossing over the Red Sea, after seeing God's, the warrior, being their strength and their salvation. Revelation chapter 15. Verse 2, and I saw what appeared to be a sea, not the Red Sea, but a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. They're ready to sing another song. They're ready to sing another one. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of God rescuing Israel, the people out of slavery. But they also sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The song of Moses tells about how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb talks about God bringing his people in the nations, this time not just Israel, but us, all of God's people. The song of Moses tells of the deliverance of Israel. The song of the Lamb tells of the ultimate deliverances, deliverance of all of God's people. There's something yet to come. We live in the already but not yet. We look forward while we look back at what God has done and what he's promised forward to what is still to come. There's this story of this pastor who he was on a retreat at his old cottage and the cottage was on a lake and uh, he was out one day and he was on the deck and he heard bagpipes in the distance and he listened for a while and um, just listening to the bagpipes and then the bagpipes the piper started playing amazing grace and so he says he just started singing. I mean, it's just this beautiful moment. You know, he's on this, on this lake, and he's hearing across the water, he's hearing bagpipes play Amazing Grace. And, and so he got extremely curious. He wanted to get a closer vantage point to where this piper was, someplace along the coast of the lake. And so he jumped in his boat, and he started paddling out. And, the, and it was one of those serene moments where the lake was so quiet and clear, and, uh, 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 and, and the sound just carried and and he says, man, I just kept on heading out into the lake, and the the farther I went, the 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 song didn't get any closer. It's one of those phenomenons where he's like, I can't find where this song is originating from. I can hear it, I, but I can't get any closer to this song. I can't, I can't, I can't. I, it's just it's just beyond my grasp. And we we. In a real sense, we live in that place where we can hear the echoes of heaven. We can, we, can, we, we can hear it. We, what we do know about heaven is that it's, it, one of the things we know is that it's a place of music and song. And it's almost as though we can hear it, 
Just like he could hear the bagpipes, but we can't quite get there yet. We're not quite there yet. And I don't know how many times I've been here with you guys in, in this service, and, 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 and the songs start to play, and Man, you know, we have our jams and we have those even in, in, in our songs that we sing. And some of those that just, that just touch you. And, and, you know, you get the lump in your throat and, and you start, the tears start to well in your eyes. The sounds are so beautiful. The words that we're, that we're singing about are so profound. And we're doing it in the context of a group of people that we love, that God has chosen to, to be our people for a season. And, and you're just beside yourself. And it's like in those moments where we're, those are like the echoes of heaven. That we're joining our voices to the ones that have come before and the angelic beings in heaven that are crying out the praises of God. We are, we're, we're joining them. We're, we're together. When we sing, it unifies us. It, it takes the truth of the gospel and it solidifies it in our hearts at an experiential level. There's an old preacher who would say that when we sing together as a family in a church service that we're rehearsing for our moment when we will join the heavenly choir. And that is true to a certain extent. There's a real sense in which even now, when we sing the songs that we sing together, even now we are joining the chorus of heaven crying out, before the Lamb and before God the Father and singing their praises and the glories that they have earned through the things that they've done in our midst. And those songs, those songs that are being sung in heaven that are carrying through time and space and with us right now as we sing. And it strengthens us and it gives us hope. And may it strengthen us and may it give us hope as we wait for that day when we join them one day in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, I, we thank you that you've given us the ability to experience you. To, to, to take the truths of the gospel and have them applied powerfully in our hearts. And we thank you, Lord God that you have given us the vehicle of song and music to unify us as a people, to remind us that you said it's not okay and you became our warrior for us. You became our strength because we could not conquer our enemies and you became our salvation and as such, you became our song. We want to sing to you we want to we know you more in the deep recesses of our hearts, Father. We want to we know you. So I pray that you would continue to mature us as a people, a people who want to give you all the glory, a people who realize that we need one another, and you've chosen to gather us together to sustain us and to see us thrive until that day when you burst forth from the sky and you make all things new. We love you. We say these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Josh. Uh, my name is Doug Payne.
I'm a member here. I'm one of the members here. I'm also one of 